I am Connor McCloud of the Clan McCloud, and I am immortal. Here we are. a dead guy named Nash. You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramius, chief metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain. Everybody's got their problems. I'm Candy. Of course you are. Hello and welcome to Another Time McLeod, the podcast that goes through the 1986 classic movie Highlander scene by scene, almost minute by minute. I'm Rob Daniel, your host, and as always, I am very happy to say I am joined by my resplendent co-host, Mr. Rob Wallace. Oh, you always introduce me so nicely. I do. And he doesn't even pay me for it. Sometimes he pays me for it. <laughs> and you might have had a chuckle there. We are joined by a regular contributor to the movie Robcast, and we are very happy to say that he is making his debut on Another Time McLeod. It is the one, the only, Mr. Ian Bird. Hello there. Thank you very much for having me. Well, no, it's very. Thank you for thank you for joining us. It's um, you're right. I was just being polite. I'm being very generous. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you just sounded a bit more enthusiastic than that. You might not know this, but Ian quite likes Highlander. <laughs> I think yeah, uh, Ian quite liking Highlander is a good place to start. Exactly when did you start liking Highlander? <laughs> um, I was it nineteen eighty six. This came out then. Yes. Okay. Um, so uh, I think this was one that managed to sneak into our house because we didn't go to the cinema to see grown-up films and my parents never went to the cinema because I think my, my dad was a huge Queen fan so a kind of magic was in here and it became a video that even my folks were into so it cross-pollinated from small children to grown-ups. I think this is probably the film I've seen more than any other film thinking about it. It was on hard rotation in our house um, it was the first film that my dad pirated from the copy he took from the video rental. And he <laughs> never did that. And so it was, when we were talking about it at school, when my dad was really into, it was like, I mean, it's one of those things where your parents are at an age where they're still doing reasonably exciting things before they get geriatric. So it was like, we go to bed, my brother and I go to bed, and my parents have their friends around for a Chinese takeaway in a movie. And um, they've rented, and it was, that Highlander was the one that they all told us about the next day. It was... It was a really lovely film. And um, they were big Queen fans as well, so a kind of magic album was in the house. And yeah, I think I've probably seen this film more than just about anything else. Wow. <laughs> so in, that's my way of saying, because of that, I have quite cavalierly undertaken no research whatsoever for the purposes of this conversation. <laughs> I'm going to wing it on having watched it 25 times or some such. <laughs> and we are, having recently uh, rewatched the uh, the relevant clips... <laughs> with uh with you just a, f- a few moments ago and then getting stuck into oh it's 20 minutes after the clips that we started watching and i literally watched it with my son yesterday so i woke him up at half past five in the morning so we could go downstairs and watch highlander uh we do this thing where um try and watch a film once a week where it's something he wouldn't be able to convince his brother to allow him to have on the tv <laughs> so last sunday it was predator and yesterday it was highlander so from half past five to half past seven, we were watching 1980s Scots people hacking away. In. And your lad is 12 years old. Yes. So that's probably about the age I was at. When I, it's probably the perfect age. I think that was... I think I was about 13. So yeah, it is. I think it is the perfect age. It's like just on the cusp of becoming a teen. So it's kind of like it's got all those flourishes 
and it's got like the illusion of adulthood in that you've got a out of nowhere sex scene and you've got some <laughs> bad language and you can sort of see someone's head come toppling off. But at the same time, it's not extreme. It's not gratuitous. It's not sadistic. It's slightly comic book. I've just got a question. Um, and this is, this is mostly for my own benefit. I really do want to know. So when does the illusion of adulthood become actual adulthood? I'm still waiting on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as I'm on the wrong end of my 40s, I'm still, I'm still waiting for it as well. <laughs> when you don't want to go to the dentist. <laughs> oh, yes, when you don't have to do things. <laughs> exactly. When you don't have to do things, but you feel you ought to, because otherwise they're going to rot away and never come back again. Yeah. So yes, dentists, pensions, when these things become... I'm sure that pain in my side will just go away on its own. But oh, I've had doctors. pain in my side for the last week or two. <laughs> <laughs> like Did your pain in your side come on when you were sitting down watching telly, just doing nothing? That's what mine came on. It was like, how could I just suddenly start hurting? This is totally opposite for this movie, because in this movie, every, nobody dies. Everyone looks gorgeous for hundreds and hundreds of years. I think I put on a little bit of weight over the last couple of months, and yet I've also become stressed at work, so I'm lurching over my computer. That's exactly it for me, but... Unfortunately for me, it's, um, yeah, she needs to lose weight. And also, Rob, you have been putting up a lot of shelves and stuff in your new flat. So basically, you've just been doing more physical activity than you're used to. And your body is now complaining about it. <laughs> the sensation <laughs> you're feeling. It's called. It's, it's called. <laughs> the bollocksing. Out of shapeness. <laughs> to give a, the to bollocksing give, is better, yes. To give the list a bit of context. We're talking we about are, Ireland. We are. <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, we're also currently sat in what what we will refer to as Rob's library, surrounded by lovely shelves full of lovely books and DVDs. Yeah. And afterwards, uh, we'll be providing you, of course, with the address if if uh... <laughs> yeah, you'll go and visit. I hear he's got a great TV. <laughs> so it is the year of our Lord, twenty twenty one. Oh, very good. <laughs> your twelve year old watched it after having seen Marvel films, and basically, if it can be imagined, it can be put onto film. This was a film that was done practically. Mm. So what did a 12-year-old in the year of our Lord 2021 think of Highlander? He really liked it. It's interesting because he's at a stage in his life where he wants to show enthusiasm for things that he knows that you're enthusiastic about. Mm. So the test will be coming back to it in a few days' time or checking his Spotify listings to see if he's been listening to a kind of magic. Because oh. it's those practical effects he really, really enjoyed. And that was something that came out of Predator as well a couple of days ago. It's that, that whole, no, we'll make it ourselves, we'll make it ourselves. And that is so riven through in Highlander. And... It's emotional beats in Highlander, which I don't think you get in the Marvel films mm. today. Also, it's, it's got a lightness and a humour that is above and beyond what you get in DC film. And it, and it keeps moving in a way that makes it a little bit more unpredictable. So I think he really got off on that. He really, he was really, he, he was delighted to see, because it's one of those um, Voight Kampf tests, isn't it, for parents. How do your child react when Peter Reedney suddenly becomes much older? <laughs> He's like, oh, she's old. <laughs> That's good. Right, you passed. We're not going to do it with your brother for a couple of years yet. <laughs> yeah, we will. That's going to be quite a while that episode, but that is just one of the finest moments of the film, that is. Oh, I was tearing up. Yeah, me too. I was just tearing up, and I've seen, like I say, I've seen it a trillion times, and it was like half past six in the morning. <laughs> well, it's, it's so beautiful, and simultaneously it's both melodramatic and yet yeah, also kind of weirdly understated. I love that about well, it, because that's, that's the whole um, thing about this film, that it's... It's self-important like an 80s heavy metal album intended for 13-year-old boys. Yeah. Or girls. But it is, it's carried with a sense. It's not quite camp, but at the same time, it's, it's not to be taken seriously. So you guys were talking about Turtle Eclipse of the Heart a couple of episodes ago. And it's like, yes, this is a meatloaf song. It's just, you take it absolutely at face value. Oh, 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 oh. 
but then when you get older it's like I love the camp flourishes in this film I love the and it is that sense of oh, I'm doomed to stay young and pretty forever and my wife is doomed to grow old and dead and I'll have to move on to the hot forensic scientist <laughs> who's American <laughs> our mutual friend Kiri um, my first conversation with her so she's a friend from the mid 90s and we met at university and I was trying to strike up a conversation with her as a grown up and said, like, well what kind of music do you like I like Queen and I was like oh wow I'm actually this is good this is good but Kiri was in 70s Queen and I was into 80s Queen so she was like 94% cooler than I was because 80s Queen is very much a, we've made our millions we're on our way to Sin City Yes, <laughs> and really, Eighties Queen. The only good stuff is the album Highlander. <laughs> it's kind of magic. It's one of those great, but the rest of Eighties Queen isn't really as good, I don't think. But um, anyway, yes. So, well, it's quite fitting uh, that your son liked all the practical effects because, of course, we will be talking about a segment that is full of practical effects when the first example of the quickening happens. So, Rob, do you want to introduce the time code and what we're going to be talking about? Sure. In today's episode, we're going to be covering the scene between 9 minutes and 6 and 10 minutes and 57, which is essentially the uh, end of the fight between Connor and Fazil and Connor experiencing the uh, the resulting quickening. Now, when we talk about the quickening, I think quickening has been used, it's kind of like the all-purpose label for something immortally that's happening. I always thought the quickening was that sense of empathy you have primarily with an immortal or a stag. Let yourself feel the stack. Until it becomes refined and you become, you gain the prize. But we're talking about the quickening as also being the goobity-goobity effects, glow-in-the-dark. Oh, it's a very multivalent term. But that's a really good point, because as we'll get into with this, when Sean Connery's character starts to talk about the rules of this, there are many, many questions for these rules that he doesn't ask. Because, and again, we're going to be jumping ahead, but he says you are experiencing the quickening, which is, yeah, to your point, an awareness of everything around him, a bit like the force, really. But then when they <laughs> kill someone and they... No, Rob, this is much more grown up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. When they kill someone and have their electric murder orgasm. <laughs> their electric murder <laughs> orgasm. I've got that album. <laughs> By Queen. <laughs> no, that was a Freddie Mercury solo album, that's right. Um, he never did a solo album. <laughs> no, no, he never did a solo album. Um, but there is something happening here there but it's like well what do we think is happening when he kills Fazil and everything starts to come to life around him so all the cars begin to come to life yeah the fire hose starts to um, turn on and flail around and he gets a spotlight on him and there's lots of wind and he seems to be absorbing some kind of energy from the universe that is uh, making him stronger but also completely leaves him exhausted. I mean, obviously, there's a <laughs> here for other things where, for a brief moment, you feel as if you're king of the universe, and then afterwards you feel completely deflated. <laughs> and have to run out the car park. And have to run out the car park. And drive away very fast. Well... Oh my God, Garfield was right! <laughs> Well, if we take it back, obviously, you know, to kind of to the really real origin of the story on the planet Zeist. <laughs> I told my son that. So at the end of the film, Ronan, and that is a good sign that he enjoyed it because he said, are there any more? And he mm-hmm. said, well, there are sequels, but you'll not watch them in this house. <laughs> For example, in the second film, it turns out that they're aliens. 
And he looked at me like I was talking complete bullshit and just tried to con him. That makes no sense. Why would there be aliens? Because we needed to make another one. <laughs> and no one gave a shit about the story. And it's shice. So yeah, so what, is it the quickening that's happening? I always just assumed it was the quickening that was happening there. Like a, another iteration of the quickening as you get closer towards being the only one. Yeah, I think it's essentially like the transference of the other one's life energy. And obviously the series goes into this in a bit more detail and actually kind of makes it into like you absorb to some degree the other person's memories. Like if you kill a really evil immortal, you can get something called a dark quickening, which can take you over and like influence your personality negatively. This doesn't sound like canon. I mean, this is definitely canon. I don't think this is canon. He's talking, this sounds like it was filmed in Vancouver. (laughs) (laughs) In weekly installments. (laughs) Did you watch a lot of the TV series? Yeah, I am. Um, I know probably over the course of however many years, I have probably seen most of it. Are there any female immortals? Yeah, there, there, there are loads. One of the weird things about the movie, isn't it? It's like they're all male. They're all men. Yeah, but that's a really good point, though. Yeah, this is a a time. So, yep, yeah, I have no questions about that film. <laughs> there are no notes for that script, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, female immortal will work. <laughs> Why not? Because all men look. <laughs> female immortal wouldn't work. Why not? Can't have kids. <laughs> The women are there to look sad and scared. Oh, it's so weird, isn't it? For one thing, it's odd that you see a two-hour movie where the hero goes through three, quite actually three and a half, four clearly defined romances with four different women, if you count Rachel. And it's like, that's kind of novel for a movie where ordinarily you've got, that's my love interest. Possibly I've got an evil love interest and a good love interest. But this time you've actually got four. Yeah, there's the only two types, aren't there? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and women, women and good women, good women. Good women. I, if, only, yeah. if only we coined a term to describe that. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting, isn't it? Because the women are poorly served in, in as much as they are all his romances. But it's also the Gregory Wyden thing. So prophecy, all the angels are men. In Backdraft, it's all about this closed-off male community of firefighters. And I'm embarrassed that it didn't occur to me. <laughs> this is like, oh, wow, yes. Someone not heard of the Bechdel test. Well, I think it's also like write what you know and steer clear of anything that you don't Angels, know. Immortals, and firemen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. But he was a fireman, wasn't he? I used to work in a basement office in London, and we looked through the windows of our office into the building that was opposite, and it was a firefighter's gym. Wow! I found that office. I was I was prince of the universe when I introduced that to the female members of our <laughs> office. They could just look straight in and see firemen working out all day. <laughs> I just feel the need to make a calendar. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so this, the one thing that strikes me about this particular segment that we'll be talking about is that Highlander's a fantasy film, and I think we've mentioned it before, but it it leans into horror cinema. And this scene particularly, because again, we're nine minutes into the movie, and we don't really know what the story is at this point. There's just been this sword fight out of nowhere in present-day New York. That's odd. There's been some backflips that immediately suggest that these people are superhuman. Weird flashes to Scottish battlefields. Yeah, indeed. And then someone gets their head cut off in a really, for the time, a very, very graphic way. I mean, I remember watching this on a Saturday afternoon with the family, and it was like, well, that's the horror film effect. That guy's head had just been lopped off and is really spun off. And wow, okay, so that just happened. And then it goes into the quickening. Um, but still gets disarmed very quickly. He seems to give up a little bit, doesn't he? Is this all about premature ejaculation? Or something? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the zeal, wait. Calm down, enjoy yourself. <laughs> it's Friday night. <laughs> the wrestling was loud. <laughs> 
with um with the deal though, there's a moment though, obviously, where Connor's got the sword to his neck, and he basically is presumably contemplating several hundred years of existence. Oh, and like I, I guess almost that's the point. I'll take that clip and overlay the curb your enthusiasm music. <laughs> <laughs> Because um, like, what's Brazil's story? You learn nothing about. I mean, oh, I, love I, I mean, that. I mean, presumably yeah. there is. I'm sure there has been lots written out. If, if we if we go on the Highlander wiki right now, there's probably as a whole developed backstory. Yeah. But and also, when obviously he's about to be decapitated, I just feel like you'd try and duck. I mean, like he's bringing the sword back. I feel like I would try and get my head to a point where it's below where the sword's gonna. I think it's quite a lovely sense that this is. This is it. This, this is, is quite end. a sad thing. Because you do because they've got the whole idea that there's only headhunters killed three people. So it's not like when I was a kid it was like so New York's full of immortals. No, it's been several thousand years. There's like five or six left. Mm. And they've anyway, we've you know, we've established that Kurgan is like several thousand years old. Uh, McLeod is quite young, being only four hundred and fifty years old himself. So you've got a sense that no, this is the end and it's actually quite appropriate. And you've got to have spent once you've figured out there's only going to be one that lives, the odds aren't in your favour. You're going to die violently at some point. I think that's a nicely played scene. So we've talked about the fact that Peter Diamond was the phone coordinator. He's not an actor. He has one line. But the look Great he gives... Line, isn't it? it is, yeah. McLeod. But the, but the look he gives at the end when he realises it is actually not a bad bit of acting, just no. in terms of the look on his face. And it is that, because it's like, obviously the real reason why he doesn't carry on is because, well, we've got a story to tell and we've opened the film in the middle of things and so therefore we do need to get into what the plot is, but we are going to give him a little bit of a beat just to look at the sword and then... That's what yeah. makes this film brilliant. Every frame has got beats in it. Everything. We were talking about um, the graffiti in there and it's someone's put the graffiti Enola Gay on the, the concrete pillars in there. It's like, that's just... It doesn't occur to just everybody. I mean, it's not people write down their favourite 80s pop song, but it's just everything has a slight resonance. So we're recording this on the 7th of August. That's the day after Enola Gay, isn't it? Hiroshima was the 6th of August. That's right. And so it's just these odd kind of like things floating around in it. We, it's, but when do you see the graffiti for the Enola Gay? What's, what's happening? That's just as the, the quickening is absorbing it, isn't it? Yeah. While so the like, atom bomb is going off in the Brazil's body. Yeah, that's right. Oh, it is about sex. <laughs> and nuclear Armageddon. And it's about sex. And these scenes only happen after a violent confrontation between two men. In a car park. <laughs> in a car park. You have to play Enola Gay now. The other concrete pillar has got Tommy written on it. So it's a little bit 80s. It's a little bit everyone's favourite Who album. It's kind of, it is all just a prog rock. Oh yeah, this is the kind of thing, <laughs> uh, to your point about this is a heavy metal album for 13 year old boys. Or girls. This could easily have been a prog rock album. Over two albums, a story about an immortal who has to fight down through the ages. Yeah, this, is, this, is rush. This, is this is Rush. This is Rush. Well, this, this is, is rush, literally yeah. because um, Marillion were offered the soundtrack before Queen, weren't they? Oh, well, there you go. Exactly. And it's like, I love Marillion. I love Marillion. And it's like, and Scottish as well. Not all the earnestness of Kaylee yes. and all of the weird jesters, tears and, and whimsy and that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. They turned it down and then kind of regretted it when they saw the film. And it's like, I mean, it's interesting, though, to see what they would have done with it, because I've never into Marillion. I tried to because a friend of mine really was, and I just couldn't get into it. I always think the Queen is the only band for this. You imagine that Marillion would have made it more Highlandery, It would have that yeah. more sort of like weird, bizarre, uh, acid folk. Yes. 
there'd be a lot less of the greatest hits of Queen. But yeah, definitely that. I love it when you listen to the soundtrack album and you've got Brian May playing his guitar like it's bagpipes. And you get to that moment, it's like, it's like the 90s where every pop song had to have a river dance bit in the middle of it. It's <laughs> any kind of Irish great. inflection whatsoever. <laughs> Brian, can you just do us a bagpipe on your guitar? Yeah, of course I can. But only for 15 minutes. That's so another element to this is, yeah, so when the quickening happens and all the cars come to life and, and all the windows blow out and all the liquids pouring out the fire hose that flails around. And out of the oil tank. Yes, yes yeah, really you get like kind of that splosh of a thick viscous liquid hitting the ground. <laughs> While Christopher Lambert is seeing God. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I would never die. I'm going to live forever. And also the fact that he's wearing a trench coat. <laughs> What's your point? I don't stand. Trench coats are cool. I don't stand what you're trying to make there. Ian arrives in... It has to be said, a Highlander trench coat today. I mean, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> Most um, days it's a Colombo trench coat, but today it was a Conor McLeod trench coat. But that scene, again, is shot like a horror film. I mean, there are canted angles in there. It's got a touch of Evil Dead about it. It just seems like a Sam Raimi thing. That scene, in terms of the visual effects, is such an encapsulation of, like, 80s cinema because there's definitely, like, there's a Ghostbusters vibe to it. Mm. In what way, sorry? Just in terms of, like, the kind of with the, the crackling lightning coming out. And that also, that's a bit, when it's all been animated in post-production, and that's also like the uh, like the demons in Ghost, and also that you know, like the Mighty Life Force. Yeah, indeed. So that was one of the things that really puts a timestamp on the film is that when Zeal's headless body is lifted up, uh, and it could be to cover the wires, a trick that they lightning. never repeated again. Yes, indeed. <laughs> it's covered in the animated blue lightning outline, which was just eighties Hollywood cinema would just do that to denote the supernatural. Uh, so the entity, which is a really interesting movie, but for the first hour is you don't see anything. But it's shot in a brilliant way in terms of split diopters and canted angles and close-ups. And it's just the best way to shoot a horror film. In the second hour, it turns into this effects light show. And it's not as interesting. But it's all that look. It's just, it's all the blue electricity. But at the time, it was like, wow, that's just the best effect. And if you could get that into your movie, then you would cram that into your fantasy horror movie. And Life Force, yeah, which was made a year before Highlander, just can't get enough of it. Um because Toby Hooper was on coke throughout the whole shoot on that film. And I think, needs more blue lightning. And <laughs> I need more blue lightning. <laughs> and more white lightning. <laughs> so, yeah, but that, and, it, and it does put a timestamp on there. But I have such a nostalgia for the blue lightning effect. The earnest excess of the 80s. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting yeah. you said Evil Dead, because I know it's the, the earlier bit of the scene, but that whole idea that the camera is always moving. It looms behind McLeod as he what? walks into the garage, zipping around. You, yeah, and when he strides out at the start of the sequence that we're talking about now, it's very much a Western oh, yeah. in terms of like him sort of stepping out into the kind of the road, essentially, as it is to face down for zeal mm. with that, you know, having previously sort of lost and recovered his sword and had that skirmish beforehand. And uh, Ian, you said some really interesting things in terms of um, the complete, this is before we started filming this, but the complete lack of any natural light oh. in the... <laughs> It's pouring with rain, but it's not under a sky. It's it's an artificial environment, isn't it? And it's a very 80s thing, isn't it? You've got Blade Runner, and it's always raining, and it's always dark. But this is a cavern they're in where it's pouring with rain. And he makes it work, doesn't he? It's that wonderful thing where McLeod turns and runs through the rain. And the way his amazing trench coat billows, it leaves this shroud um, ghost image of 
that he's left behind as he's run out and shot. Yeah. And then immediately you've got the hubcap that goes rolling across. And this is so right at the end of the... Right at the end of our, the moment that we're talking about here. It's like, there is not like a, I'll just film that. It's not, this is not an after two shot. Establishing shot, two shot, then a close up on him and then... Well, when he runs through kind of the, the veil of the water that's coming down from the springs and vanishes, mm. uh, it's very um, Last of the Mohicans with the waterfall. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. You're absolutely right. I think it is just that it was damned. This film, I read a review of this film and said, oh, it's just uh, it's a music video. It's like, yeah, brilliant. There's attention to detail in every shot because I'm trying to tell a film in three minutes. And what we're going to be talking about in the next scene in terms of, well, going into the next scene. Yeah, it's just a music video with some astonishing filmmaking. Yeah, it? well, it was a very Nick... This is the first Nick Rogue film that wasn't a Nick Rogue film that I saw, when it's like everything mm. transitions. It's like, you don't just do... It's not just cut to the next scene. It's not even a screen wipe. It's like, nope, this looks like this, and then suddenly it goes to something completely different. It's so much attention to detail. Everything is happening all at the same time. You've got room to have industrial garbage and crushed cans and obliterated even throw away industrial apocalypse stuff like the destroyed car with the windscreen has been smashed in, but still this kind of like um, dislocated blades. wiper yeah. blades against a windscreen that's not there. It's like, that's a brilliant image. That's brilliant. And it's there for a second and we're moving on. And of course, the image of Connor kind of on his knees looking up at the heavens bathed in that kind of spotlight is, is on the poster. It's the poster. It's the key image on yeah. the poster. But yeah. everything about it, I mean, he just gasps, he falls to his knees and there's a wonderful silhouette of his hair flopping forward. The outline of his outfit, it's like, and his outfit on his silhouette, it looks like it's every day. He's just wearing jeans, sneakers, a leather jacket, and a trench coat. But it's like, artfully, that's what, he's wearing body armour that looks inconspicuous as body armour. I mean, it's, we can all dress like that. Why, are we like, <laughs> why do we not all dress like that all the time? It's very, very true. That's a really good point, though. Um, yeah, do you want to go into that a bit more in terms of how carefully the costume has been put together in terms of how it makes sense for the life he's living? Yeah, because it's, I think... You'll talk about it in other episodes, I'm sure. But he always dresses well. When he shows up at Brenda's apartment for the date, he's wearing a lovely suit. It's just not remarkable, but it's a lovely suit. He's got the whole thing in World War II where suddenly he's wearing the high-waisted trousers and the braces. And he just, because he's been around, he knows how to dress well. Which is kind of like, it's an easily overstated thing. But in an 80s movie, it's like, oh, he's wearing jeans and a leather jacket. But when he's dressed for fighting, he's wearing a hard leather jacket underneath a trench coat so it doesn't look like he's wearing armour. He's putting gloves on to protect his hands while he's doing a sword fight. He looks like that's an ancient barbarian dressed for war as modern day streets. And he's fighting a guy who's wearing a yuppie suit. It's kind of like, so Fazil's got this wonderful, fleshy, slightly ruddy face, which is kind of accentuated by the fact he's got the floppy blonde hair. I think he's wearing like a black pinstripe suit. He looks like um, Donald Trump. He's got that kind of like <laughs> yeah, it's like a navy blue or like a dark blue suit. Yeah, and, uh, but yeah, he, yeah, he just he his tie goes all the way down to his belt buckle. But yeah. to my knowledge, Donald Trump never had any trouble in Scotland. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very good. The thing there, though, that I always thought about, and that's a really good point about the deal suit, is that it looks like a suit, but it's clearly been tailored for maneuverability because mm. he can do backflips in it and that kind of stuff. It's like it looks like he's dressed very, very conservatively, but he can still fight in a very, very flamboyant way. And he's got he's, uh, the sunglasses he wears, aren't they? The reflective sunglasses, which is kind of like he's disguising where he's looking and he uses his coat as an extra weapon to try and disarm McLeod. And it's like, it's they paid attention to who they hired for every part of this film. Oh yeah, should we actually, should we quickly look up the costume designer? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, costume is wonderful. I love the way that Brenda is, is not dressed like some um, 80s sex kitten. Just one more piece there is that the, and in terms of the attention to detail, it's also attention to mood this scene with 
reveal. You have horror and action and fantasy, and it ends on a comedy beat. It ends on one of the old gags of the silent cinema that uh, you would hear the car drive off and then crash. You'd hear the crash, and then one of the wheels would roll. <laughs> one of the hubcaps <laughs> really would. True. But here we've got the rim coming back on. It's like it ends on a comedy note. It's like that is a funny uh, thing that's happened. Do you remember that? Um, I remember a review of the original King Kong where someone said the bit where the dinosaur is scratching his ear and that's a little bit of a sneeze. And someone's saying, you would never do that these days. You would never pay that much attention to a throwaway detail like they did in King Kong bollocks because that's the hubcap and that's the ed 209 with his little toe the costume designer is james ackerson you're not gonna believe what else he worked on did he work on star wars no uh, <laughs> but he did work on time bandits brazil wow okay. monty python's the meaning of life he went on and did mary shelley's frankenstein <laughs> um, he did the last emperor he also did the first three Spider-Man movies, and he actually did, he was the guy who designed the Doc Ock get-up. Oh my gosh. Oh, okay. And having just talked about Sam Raimi moments ago. Yeah, that's lovely, yeah. isn't it? That's the thing, is that this was a film. A lot of people from this film, particularly in terms of the crew, went on to other yeah, great things, or had come from great things. It's like, they hired people of pedigree for this film. And it's weird that it's like a cult movie, because it's like, well, this was a film that wanted to be a blockbuster. This wanted to be Ghostbusters. And they made a really good movie, but, well, the fact that it was cut in the States and apparently didn't make much sense, didn't really do it a lot of good. But then it wasn't that well-reviewed around the world either, even in its longer cut. So it just didn't seem to vibe with people until it hit video. Yeah, it's it's made, on, yeah it's made on video film, isn't it? That's right. I mean, it's like... Um, no one saw this at the cinema. No, and it, I mean, it played. I think that Sarah talks about the fact that... Her aunt and possibly her dad. Oh, that's right, yes. Which is literally the first time I've ever heard anyone seeing it at the cinema on its original release in this country. But yeah, it's like another example of the Ferris Bueller's Day Off effect of a film that just died a death and then suddenly proved the power of video to the movie studios. So it's like, oh my God, everyone has discovered this film. I think that The Lost Boys was like another example of that where they were right, but then on video, it became a phenomenon because of, of course also, The Lost Boys and this is a 15. And it's like, well, in the 80s, it was harder to get into 15s, I think, than it is now. So therefore, yeah, kids were discovering this at home. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just the fact that he's our hero. So this is 10 minutes into it. And so far, our hero has only said Fazil wait. But even the way he's like, it's it's like, this is something weird going on here. His accent is, he has got a funny voice. And he's <laughs> so calm when he says it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, wonderfully. Fazil. Wait. But it's, it's the music all the way through it as well. It's like it, something, a quiet, strange, bizarre epic is going on in this car park. Yeah, it's a great way to open the film. Yeah, it is. I don't know. It's one of those things. I think because at the time it was a constantly moving camera and fast cuts and lots of movement. All that stuff, which we now look at as good filmmaking because you know the effort that had to go in to achieve that illusion of, of this epic struggle going on. I think at the time was it was just seen as like, well, this is just MTV flash with no substance. Yeah, and, and you see the genre trappings and that's all you see. Oh, yeah. they're immortals. I don't know. There's some, some gobbledygook about chopping one of those heads off. And it reminds me of that Tony Scott thing, isn't it? It's billowing curtains and blue light and doves and whatever. And it's like, people, oh, it's just all nonsense. It's all nonsense. But it's actually, it's pretty. And it's, it's a document of what 80s aesthetics were like. And doesn't this remind you of the hunger in that sense that it's about you're a trash who live forever in amazing New York accommodation and their weird, kinky, sex, violent lives. <laughs> and it's like, they're all gorgeous. And whether Catherine Deneuve or Christopher Lambert, these exotic French people who come over here. The second Very time that The Hunger has been mentioned in... in yeah, the second oh, really? Video. Yes, um, Sarah gave it a shout-out. Oh, really? I, did, I, I watched The Hunger... Uh, 
a few years ago, for like, I saw it a million years ago, but I've all watched it and it's like, bloody Highlander. It's exactly the same as Highlander. Well, you've got a piece on your side, don't you? I did. I wrote a piece afterwards. It's from Hunger to Highlander. It's the same film. Right down to the fact that the, the love interest, the love interest, the female character is a scientist in both uh, yeah, Susan Sarandon and Roxanne right. Hart. And Tony Scott is one of those, I mean, he went through like quite a bad period of making movies. But The Hunger is a weirdly emotional film, the same as Highlander. It's got the same opening as well, isn't it? You can draw a real parallel from the fight in the car park to the Bauhaus concert, Bela Lugosi's Dead, Mm. where it's kind of like that same kind of like New York 80s underground, but it's a weird predator moving through both. Well, that's right, yeah. Quickly going back to what you were saying about being dressed for battle, um, that whole kind of leather jacket thing is very uh, warrior's. Yeah, yeah, it is. Mm. I thought Warriors a lot with this as well. And we talked about earlier, didn't we, with um, Garfield's wearing a 13 pin. So he's yeah. from Precinct 13. Yes. <laughs> this really. weird, bizarre, post-apocalyptic New York. And that's a good point about the Warriors, because, of course, the Warriors is another film that this is the kind of thing that you make when you can't make a comic book movie. Mm. Um, Walter Hill said he always wanted it to have a comic book feel, which I think it really does. But then in like 2005 or something, or something like that, he released a director's cut that literally applied a comic book look to it, where it would freeze the image and it would be like a comic. Oh, so like a panel of, of art, yeah. But it would be like the scenes would start off with like a panel of comic book art, and then would dissolve through to the actual image, like yeah, the um, action. Um, and it just ruined it because it's like, well, that's too literal. Now. It shouldn't look like a comic book. It is a comic book. But this is what a film looks like when you do a comic book movie. Making it literally like Creepshow doesn't work. Definitely. The wonderful thing about comic books is you read them at your own pace. You go forwards, you go backwards through the page. That makes sense. And if you're any good at it, you make sure that your transitions work. So we talk about Nick Rogue. It's like Nick Rogue films are are Alan Moore comics. And those kind of match on actions you see all the way through, especially the earlier comics. Watchmen is is an obvious point, isn't it? And loads of jokes to that effect in Killing Joke. And in this, it's like the transitions from this to suddenly to that are so well done. It's like, that's that's fantastic. And literally, this, this episode is going to end with transitioning up, and suddenly it's 1536. I think, yeah, I think that is a, a seamless transition to transitions. <laughs> um, and we will return to Nick Rogue on this podcast again in a considerably later scene. But yeah, was there anything else we wanted to talk about with this episode? I just think this is such a dense film. There's so much wonderful stuff that's poured into it. And the fact that we're so... What does it end? This is 10 minutes, 52 seconds, did you think? This ends at 10 minutes, 57 seconds. So it's fairly well packed in, in a film that if it was made today, you would probably still be seeing how amazing the hero's love interest was that he left in bed that morning in order to go off and play <laughs> some wonderful facial... This, this thing is telling a really quite complicated story incredibly well in a very kinetic and physical way, isn't it? We've actually, so to your point, um, not a lot of dialogue to open it up. I mean, there's incidental dialogue, but you're right. The hero, right, at this moment has said two words. Yeah, and he's, right. he looks so striking. Mm. I, About this age... My school did a day trip to France, like so, so many, my school's in the south, so we just nipped across on the ferry. And it was at the point where Subway was out in the cinema. So this little tiny town in Normandy, we were just wandering through, had all these posters up of Christopher Lambert for Subway. And he's wearing a dress shirt with uh, the wing collar and the peroxide blonde buzz cut. No, it's not a buzz cut, it's kind of like... <laughs> like a fierce blonde spikes isn't he there's a lot of product in there there's a lot of product in there and he's holding what looks like it's a um a train handle to hold himself up but actually it's a, a fluorescent tube yeah. and it's a thing that is a gorgeous image of 80s that's 
that's Europe, that's the, that's living in the future and doing it with style. And if he doesn't doesn't care if he doesn't have that much context behind. Do you remember the the name, the French name of that particular wave of filmmaking? Because there was Diva was another one as well. No, Cinema de Look. Really? Yeah, Cinema yeah. de Look. Well, that's the thing. If if Christopher Lambert had been working a couple of decades before, he would have been new wave. He's got the perfect new wave. Oh God, I would have snapped him. Up. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jean-Paul Belmondo would have had a look in. <laughs> uh, one of my lockdown treats this year was uh, Call My Agent on Netflix. Have you watched it? No, I've not. No, it is, I've heard good things. It is really? lovely. It is such a lovely series. And it's so full of, like, th- not throwaway. There's lots of examples, of, but it's done with this real love of, like, French fame and French chic. And this character is trying to hide her parentage from the people in her, she's in this new office she works in. They're all talent agents because her secret estranged father is, is working there. But, they, but everyone knows there's something going on. So as, as a lie, she says, my, my, I'm, I'm illegitimate. My father's Christopher Lambert. And it's kind of like, well, of course. But then in a later episode, Christopher Lambert just walks into the talent agent and he looks like Christopher Lambert. He looks amazing. I saw him at the film fair last year. And he still looks absolutely amazing. But in this, it's like, yes, Christopher Lambert has a walk-on cameo. <laughs> and everyone is like, well, of course, he's side bastards everywhere. Even though I hear he can't have children. <laughs> and Heather's not going to like that, I'll tell you that for nothing. Perfect way to end. But, okay, well, that's been plugged. And Ian, I think people do need to read your From Hunger to Highlander piece. Where can they find that? I think it was, um, it's, my website is www.mrcarapus.co.uk. And it's in there somewhere. Rob, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, yeah, well, you can find me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace and find my writing, uh, such as it is, at of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. And if people wanted to follow the podcast, where could they find that? Oh, if uh, people want to follow uh, another Time McLeod, you can do so at Time McLeod on Twitter. Cool. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel, and my writing is electric-shadows.com. And we do another podcast, of course, called The Movie Robcast. And you can find that wherever you listen to, to your podcast. And on Twitter, that is at Movie Robcast. And happily, I'm going to say thank you very much for joining us, Ian. But you're going to be back for the very next episode. What? What are the odds? Very Quite high, because <laughs> <laughs> we know how much you like Highlander and we want to get you on. <laughs> so, yes. So, thanks very much for this wonderful chat. Thank you very much, Anthony. And we'll talk to you again very, very soon. And thank you for listening, dear listener. And... You will hear from us very, very soon. And until then, another time, McLeod! <laughs> <laughs>